Hello, and welcome to That Science, the podcast exploring the meaning of science today. I am your host, Susan O'Flynn, and today our guest is Dr. Rochelle Monkhoff. Rochelle is co-founder of the Plain Sight Archive, a non-profit organisation developing an online tool and resources dedicated to a more inclusive understanding of the history of arts and culture. Today, we'll be talking about one area of her research conducted during her academic career that focused on a specific role for women in the early modern period, so-called searches of the dead. Just to let you know, this interview was conducted over Zoom, so whilst I've tried my best to cut out any blips, I do apologise in advance. And without further ado, here's the wonderful Rochelle. So, hi Rochelle, and welcome to That Science. So I'd like to ask you my first question, um, what are the searches? Well, hi, Susan. Thank you for having me. The searchers, also called the searchers of the dead, were poor women who were hired by their parishes from the time of Queen Elizabeth I to search bodies for signs of plague, especially during epidemics at the beginning. So they were they were the women who decided whether or not somebody had plague, whether they died of plague, whether they had plague while they were living for issues of quarantine. If a house was determined to have somebody who had the plague in it, then the house was shut up with everybody inside, healthy, not healthy, shut up for 40 days. So basically, until people really survived or passed away within the house. So it was quite draconian. There were watchmen set up. And so imagine, here's one of the poorest women in your community could decide to lock your door on you and your family, right? And I mean, that's where the power really comes from. Searchers, officially start in 1578 in the plague orders. But what I think of as a codification of a whole range of practices that were happening in the 16th century before then, right? So it wasn't invented and then applied. It was, let's try this and let's try this and maybe we should do that. And then those practices become codified. So we need to say no other European country used women officially in this way. It's it's very much an English practice. And it's it occurs throughout England, mostly in the South and in the cities. So 1578 is a very important date for the codification of the searcher into an office in the parish government. So they are elected, they have to give an, they have to say an oath. So it's a very, very formal position. And they usually hold the role until they die. So starting in the 1620s, searchers were asked to determine all cause of death unless it was a homicide case or an accident where the coroner needed to be called in to make sure the law didn't need to be involved. But they were doing that so that then you can really see an outbreak happening from the ground up, right? So that cause of death work, it's tied to plague work, but ultimately becomes something different because it outlasts plague. Even when plague was no longer a threat in London in the early 18th century, searchers were still working because this information was so useful to have for all causes of death. And the period from, say, 1665, and certainly from 1720 through the 18th century is is one of really routine. It's more of documentation that becomes super bureaucratic. Boom, boom, we do them every week. We, We elect our searchers every year. So that 18th century moment is when this, the bills are so regular, they become used for statistical analysis of all kinds. And that's important because, of course, London is growing 
tremendously across the 18th century and certainly into the early 19th century. And yet the bills of mortality fundamentally don't change. They're small changes. Plague as a category of death goes away, cancer comes in. So then what do you think was the main reason for the disappearance of the role of the searchers and the disappearance of the bills of health? To explain it, I need to say a little bit more about the parish as a governing location. So all across the period that we've been talking about, from the reign of Henry VIII to the early 19th century, the parish is the site of governance for the local community in London. The parish government is where things happen. And it partly comes out of the changes from the Reformation, which I know, good God, how are we talking about the Reformation? But if you're going to change the model specifically of healthcare at the time of the Reformation, because you're going to get rid of all monasteries, any kind of religious institution that's helping with healthcare. So the parish at the Reformation takes on those roles. Of course, there are hospitals, but they are very much geared towards specific issues, orphans, syphilis. So the parish becomes this locus where healthcare, poor relief, and public health are intertwined. So what happens in 1836 specifically is that Parliament makes a new law about the registration of marriage, and it's called the Act of Registration. And this is what detonates the whole system for cause of death and the searchers. They're worried about marriages being recorded on a national scale, taking them out of the province of the Church of England and keeping national records. And then they become instantly aware that they also have to change birth registration and death registration, that those three things are intertwined. After 1836, one of the driving things in this era is a new plague, and that plague is cholera. It can't be measured in a week. Well, it might be here and gone within a week because it is so rapid. So the the mapping that the old bills of mortality do doesn't capture what's happening with cholera. It really needed that new kind of mapping to understand it. The main disease threatening London in the 1830s isn't effectively captured in the bills. They don't work the way they used to. Parish doesn't work the way it used to. So it's all a systemic failure that burgeons into something new. And so I guess then, like, were they kind of regarded with a sense of suspicion in their community? I can imagine, would these searches have been regarded as kind of harbingers of death and disease? Or yeah. And so does that carry through? Definitely. Does that carry through to literature then? Do you think that sometimes in the literature that you read, are they kind of written about in this way? Well, I think there's two things that happen when you're that kind of harbinger of death is that you don't get written about at all, right? There's something too too close about it because they are very often not in literature, even when you would expect them to be. So for instance, in Daniel Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year, Journal of the Plague Year. They're in there only insofar as he quotes the official orders about who's hired to do what jobs, but they are never in there in terms of his, quote, you know, supposed experience of the plague, which it's historical fiction. He didn't, it's not a diary of what he actually went through. The searcher's bit is in there, but he never shows them in the narrative doing any of the work that they would have done. And in fact, he gives that work to other figures in the parish. And he must know that he's changing history. He has to know. And I think he's doing it intentionally because he's trying to do a model of 
public health that he wants to see, not that was. So it's not a good representation of plague measures as they were, but as he wanted them to be. One of the places where they are is they're in Romeo and Juliet. And they're in there so carefully that, I, I mean, we've pretty much everyone who grows up in an English-speaking country has had to read that play, right? But how many of you know that searchers are in Romeo and Juliet? They're the invisible figures that keep the letter from being delivered so that Romeo doesn't know Juliet's alive. They're in there, but you don't see them. And that's, I think, the definition of the searcher, right? They're they're present, <clears throat> excuse me, but they're not seen or after their usefulness is no longer required, then then they return to invisibility. Another place where they show up in the early days, that is to say in the plague era, uh, there's tabloid kind of writing, especially um, Thomas Decker has these great, what are called plague pamphlets, because he's trying to make money while the theaters are closed, right? He's a, he's a playwright. And he's got some crazy, like urban legend kind of writing, like, I heard that this child was, you know, wrapped in her um, in her shroud, and because the searcher said she was dead of plague, but then we heard her cry out, and of course she wasn't dead. So exactly that kind of fear, like they can determine who lives, who lives, and who dies. Anyway, where else do they appear in literature? They're in a short story by an 18th century woman writer, Elizabeth Griffith, and I'm not, I'm not going to remember the name of the story. I think she was fascinated by the London searcher as just this figure of like, holy cow. I mean, I think as a woman writer, she was interested that there were still these women with this kind of authority. So she wove it into a story. But really, we don't see them in literature, partially, I think, because we don't see much plague, actual plague in literature, because it's incoherent, doesn't make sense while it's happening. And then when you're trying to make sense of it afterward, either creatively or just historically, it's really the big picture that you're after. It seems often you want the big story and not the day-to-day little stories. Because, you know, think of the big plague books, Boccaccio, right? The whole of the Decameron is frame is the plague story, right? The plague is ravaging. So we're going to tell these stories to keep the plague away. But, But the plague is never mentioned within the stories, right? It's only mentioned in the frame as a way of kind of literally keeping it at the edge, right? And I think it's so interesting because your research really taps into something that I'm really interested in as well, because when I was at school, when I was in high school, there was never really anything about the daily lives of people in a pandemic. And maybe that was the basic level at which I was studying, but there there was never really a focus on how did they manage with the disease in their daily lives? And, you know, your research really brings to light the practical aspects of controlling an epidemic and managing an epidemic and the day-to-day bureaucracy that goes into that, I guess, which is what I really enjoyed about it. I mean, it's so easy to have this narrative about epidemics, this kind of also sensationalist aspect to that narrative, the yeah. horrible appearance of the buboes and the, all this horrible stuff about the plagues. But, you know, you're not really looking at the the daily workings of people living in that time it's also it's one of the only examples that I've seen maybe in my own research that is really women having the leadership roles in their community and contributing to statistics I mean you kind of said yourself maybe I'm paraphrasing here but they're part of 
the development of the early statistical method of epidemics? Definitely they are. So the searchers are hired to look for signs of disease. And all that really comes out of the need to count, right? Who's sick? How many are sick? How many have died? Which is actually the first question that got asked, even going back to the 1530s under Henry VIII. By the time of Queen Elizabeth, it's very fixed and the searchers are written into the plague orders, the, the formal documents that talk about how to deal with epidemics. And then what happens is that counting, which is gathered parish by parish, begins to be printed into a bill of mortality so that you can get a single sheet and that it says this parish, this many people died of plague, this parish. So it's really a kind of map of where plague is, how bad it is, whether it's going up or down, because <clears throat> they're printed every week. So you could, is it worse this week or better? Is is and the best example of this is Samuel Pepys's diary. I mean, he reads those things every time he can get his hands on them. And he's moving his money and he's moving his family based on what he interprets is happening, that it's getting worse or getting better. So they're printed pretty regularly from around the 1620s all the way through that 1665 plague, the big plague, you know, the great plague. And then a tradesman decides he's going to really look at them, analyze them. And this is John Grant and his observations on the bills of mortality. And basically, he says, you can learn a lot. <laughs> if you look across all this data, you can really, you can understand the world. And so he and, a, and another person are involved in developing what comes to be called political arithmetic. And then that becomes the backbone for statistics is the field that we know it. So the searcher's work in turning like the body into a number becomes these bills, which become data for analysis, which becomes statistics. But yeah. And I think that's the introduction yeah. to your manuscript. One thing that you've referenced, I think, is the, the 1665 Bill of Mortality. And those are something that would very easily be in a textbook in even at GCSE here, which is for 16 year olds. Yeah. Even at GCSE, you're seeing those bills of mortality. But those were what you're saying, all collected by the searchers and all collected by women. Yes, every that's, number is collected by women. That's fascinating. <laughs> wow. It, it, from the, the late 17th century, almost to 1840, the bills of mortality are printed every week. And every time there's a number, there's a woman who determined that number across that whole period of time. Yeah, it's... That's, that's so mind-blowing. You must have been, when you kind of look back through the archives and you were looking at the invisible presence of these women, you must have been completely shocked because was there anything before this that has suggested there were these women doing this? Well, they so they are in the orders for the plague, um, which is where I first saw them. And I just thought, wait a minute. <laughs> wait, somebody has got to have written about this because this is insane. Right. And that was just the plague. Right. So I did what you were supposed to do, which is go find the historian that wrote about this amazing stuff and then figure out what it meant to Romeo and Juliet. But nobody had written about them. And I just thought, well, that's not true. There was one little article. It's like four or five pages long in the New York Bulletin of Medicine <laughs> in, I don't know, the 60s or something. A doctor had written about them for a minute. And while people had written about the bills, nobody had written about how the data was gathered. I mean, it would, what can you say? <laughs> no, it's it's crazy. I mean, but isn't that part, like when you actually go back and like look over a lot of feminist research, especially in the history of medicine nowadays, yeah. there's much more of a focus on prioritizing yeah. women in history and their role within the fundamental developments of science. We have to kind of reconcile this 
patriarchal assumption we've been given about history and the history of medicine with the real with the reality of it which is that women were always if not at the center always there and always present and I think that's that's part of what your research is doing. So I guess that kind of leads us on to the more obvious question how did you conduct your research if documentation of these women's roles didn't exist? I think we talked about it last time, but that was that idea of your kind of skill and background in English literature allowing you to look at these archives and allowing you to look at these records, infer a narrative from what's presented in front of you, even though it's supposed to be an official record. Well, I think one of the things, you know, if you study poetry, you're not looking only at what's there, but you're looking at association gap, what's not there. You're used to dealing with evidence in a way that's not the traditional historical method. I I think I told you that early on, I was at a conference giving a paper on searchers and a historian, a woman came up to me and she's, she's a woman who really works on history of medicine and archival stuff and, you know, women's roles. She's a fantastic person. And she said to me, I have seen this evidence and I didn't see what you could do with it. So I'm so glad you're looking at it. But she was saying the kind of evidence this is, is hard for somebody with my training to know what to do with it. So, you know, she really became my mentor in terms of how to be a proper historian, even as I bring my sense of what's absent. So that early moment when I saw the searchers in the plague orders, and then I read Paul Slack's book, The Impact of Plague, which is the big main important book on plague in Shakespeare's time. And I went into his footnotes, which is what you do, right? And I, every time he talked about a searcher, which is not very often, I was, I dug into his footnotes and it just so happened that Wisconsin owned these antiquarian books where at the turn of the 20th century, people had gone into the parish records in London and had transcribed them. So for some of the records, you didn't have to go in to the old public record office. You could get these transcriptions, these published transcriptions. And there were three that Wisconsin had. And so I just was like, okay, what do these show? So here's what kind of documents a parish keeps. They keep account records, what they spend the money on. They keep vestry minutes, which is the meetings, (laughs) the week, the monthly or weekly meetings for the parish business. And then sometimes a little bit later, they keep poor relief documents. And that's where you see searchers, right? Because either they're paying the searcher in the account book, sometimes they pay by name. Uh, That is to say, gave Widow Jones two pence for searching, right? Or more often gave two pence to the searcher, period. End of story. So what do you do if you see somebody, unnamed person, being paid two pence, being paid two pence? I began to record the names and just try to build a little web. Okay, where else do you see this name? So I was lucky enough to be introduced to parish records through those formal printed or transcribed and printed documents from the early 20th century. And then I was very lucky because the University of Wisconsin had an exchange program for postgraduate work. So I was able to spend a year at the University of Warwick. And also this was the mid 90s. So there was not there was not a lot of technology involved in those early days, right? So it was pretty um, not easy. Let's put it that way. <laughs> London was very intimidating for those kinds of records, but a lot of work had been done on other cities. 
Reading, for one, Bristol, other plague work. It was a long period of time using a lot of different kind of records, but at the at the base of it all, the foundation of it all, are the parish records where women are hired or elected, a picture of who the women were and how doing plague work fit into a larger social setting of the parish work. That was the beginning. And I think the most important thing to say is I was lucky enough to be in England. I couldn't have done it without looking at actual physical handwritten documents from that era. One of the things that really moved me that I found in some 19th century records were these little tiny slips of paper handwritten by a searcher named Elizabeth Thwaites. And I'm not thinking of what parish she was in, but a London parish. And they seem to be the little pieces of paper that she wrote on to turn in to the parish clerk because the bills of mortality are made by the searcher coming to the parish clerk and telling him the different causes of death. And then he records that information and gives it to the, the parish clerks as a whole. And they publish documentation evidence. And we don't, we think it's very oral in the 17th century, but those little 19th century documents really indicated that the searcher wrote something down and then she basically turned it in to her parish clerk. And then he documented his parish and gave it to the, you know, the worshipful company. And then the bill was published. It's the one time I heard a searcher speaking directly to me. I would say one of the few times. That's That must have been like so amazing to find that like that little tidbit of of information that really, I don't know, they're kind of just yeah. forgot, well, completely forgotten parts of history. And I think they were driving the history and they were driving a lot of the history that we know. Was it the marginalized status of these women that drew you to them as people? Or was it the fact that no one had done this research before? Or was it a bit of both, really? Both, absolutely. I mean, it's just, I think, you know, it's just so stunning to find out women had this important role. And yet, of no, seemingly no interest to anyone. <laughs> I think I had mentioned to you when we spoke a while ago that I began to go to conferences, like I went to big one on the parish in Oxford. And, you know, all these male historians who work with these records all the time. And, you know, I'm giving my paper on the importance of women in the parish government. And they were just like, why? Why would, I mean, literally a question was, why would you look for women in these records? And what is no answer is going to satisfy that question um, because they're there. <laughs> you know, uh, why do you look for a record of the king's arms being destroyed in the Civil War, you know, in the parish? Because it interests you, uh, obviously, and you think it's important. That's why anyone looks for anything. So I think always it matters who's got access to records, who's looking at records. You know, while I was coming up in this, there was a lot of work being done by some um, scholars of color who were really interested in how many times people of African descent are in these records, even well, even in Queen Elizabeth's reign, you know, and similarly, they were being told, like, why are you even bothering? But, you know, if you look and you look, you can put together a very impressive, a very important missing piece of how present people were in the past. So yeah, women, all sorts of people who should be looked for and seen. Apart from, as you say, all, a lot of women historians, was there really any other historians that were seeing the importance of your work? Or Of course there were, and there are. 
But the trouble with the way history, the way the academy works in these in this era, is everyone's very siloed. You work on the 17th century, you work on the 18th century, you work on the 19th century. The current mode of expertise is to be very focused on a particular time period. Sometimes the smaller the better, but so, but definitely 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, and not really to work across those those divides. You might work across at the very edge, right? But if you work on the 19th century, you're certainly not reading things um, about medieval medicine. Why would you in the current practice, right? Even though medieval practices of medicine were in place until the 19th century. But that's just the way we do expertise at the moment is to be very siloed from each other. And I guess kind of moving on from that, one of the works that I was looking at that you were cited in was one that talked about, it was actually uh, published a couple of years ago, and it was talking about how the gendered analysis that your kind of work focuses on really allows us to look at the coronavirus pandemic in a new light. I mean, there was all, I think they referenced specifically that there was a lot of footage of women being recorded in really like horrifying situations where they were healthcare workers, but they were pregnant. Hello, just a quick note from Editing Susan here to say that this quote, this point, is actually taken from an article about the looking at the experience of a cinematic representation of women during epidemics. The line I'm quoting says, quote, the images of a heavily pregnant woman treating patients in a hospital has brought into sharp focus the gender dimensions of epidemic disease outbreaks. They reference Rochelle's article to comment on the surprising lack of gendered analysis in mainstream culture. Um, and of course, I've, I've put both links to both of the articles in the show's notes, so do go check them out. I think your kind of research is really important for reminding us that women have always had these roles and that women have always operated within healthcare and they've always been such a central part of medical of the medical establishment. Well, not a central part, but always a kind of underappreciated part of medical establishment. I think central and underappreciated. What do you think we can really learn from the searches? Well, I think there's, you know, there's different ways to answer that question. But in terms of our experience of the recent epidemic is just to know that there's always somebody's body is on the front line of dealing with bodies. There's always somebody touching someone else. That's how care is done. I mean, you can give medicine, you can do surgery, but so much of care is feeding, washing, right? Holding someone's hand. And who is doing that work? How do we value that work? Because it's as valuable as surgery, right? Or amazing medicine. So to me, the searchers are in that line of history, right? Of people who are physically right next to the thing that not very many people want to be next to, right? And this is, I mean, we're talking about plague work, right, specifically. I think the searchers also teach us about, um, what do I want to call it, the kind of absent evidence. Lots of people did lots of things in history, and sometimes there is evidence for what they did, and sometimes that evidence is not so easily seen and available unless unless other kinds of people are in the, the holdings, the privileged places of where these documents reside, you know, the Bodleian Library, like who can go in there, right? And who can see what's in what's in these documents? It's 
the searchers are a good example of. We need all kinds of people in archives looking for traces that is recorded in these places, but not always valued and seen, right? So that's the second thing that they can show or that they represent to me, that messy lived experience becoming clean data erases. It has to erase so much, but I'm interested in what it erases. So should we, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to 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 give well, across? Any final thoughts just, that you want to say in the remaining few minutes? No, I just wanted to say thank you so much for talking to me about the searchers. I mean, you know, I know it's a super big topic and there's a lot that I probably didn't say and should have, but I really, I really enjoyed talking with you. I'm so glad you're interested. Uh, yeah. And thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to me and taking your morning to talk to me because I've been, I've been yeah. so grateful and you've definitely a lot to, to think about for, for listeners, I think, about the place of women in the history of medicine. So thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much to Rochelle for taking the time to come and talk to me about her fascinating research. For all of the texts we've talked about today, I've included links in the show's notes. Thank you all for tuning in and make sure to come back next week for That Science with Amelia. And if you haven't already, please do give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at That Science Pod with two S's to keep an eye on our socials for next week's topic and updates from myself and Amelia. Until next time.